Well, go ahead and please turn your Bible with me to the book of Exodus. We are going to be covering today uh, about four chapters, three chapters, four chapters. I'm kind of like winging it, I guess, today. We'll just see how far we get. We're going to cover eight plagues. How about that? All right. And what I'm going to do, since we're covering so much, I'm not going to read the entire selection of Scripture today. Otherwise, I would have no time to preach it. And I know that you're just chomping at the bit, waiting for that. So, um, but more important than my word is, is uh, God's word as it's delivered right here in the Scriptures. So let's just take a, a few minutes here and let me read a good portion of our text for this morning. And it's found in Exodus chapter 7. We're going to start there and we'll finish up uh, in chapter 10. And try to follow along. I'm going to call out a verse, and I'll kind of hop through it and hit the high points. And hopefully we'll be able to track with God's Word here and the story as it opens up. Chapter 7 of Exodus, we're going to start with verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, take, off, take, take your staff and cast it to the ground before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they did just as God commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same thing by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh. As he is going out into the water, stand on the brink of the Nile and take take your staff in your hand. I'm sorry, I lost my, lost my place. And the staff, thank you, the staff, uh, the staff that turned into the serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, so that they may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you will know that I am the Lord. Behold, the staff in my hand will strike the water that is the Nile, and it will turn to blood. The fish in the Nile will die. And the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch it out over your head, over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals, the ponds, and the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But you refuse to let them go. Behold, I will plague all of your country with frogs. Let's jump down to verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs would be cut off and that your houses would be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one else like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you. Verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that, uh, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Let's skip to verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else 
If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your house and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Verse 31, And the Lord did as Moses asked, removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, camels, herds, the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Verse 17, or verse 7, end of verse 7, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become like fine dust all over the land of Egypt and, and, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and on beast throughout all of the land. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh, and say, Thus says the Lord of God, Let my people go that they may serve me, for this time I will send all my plagues on, your, uh, uh, on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me on the earth. For by now I could have put my hand and, uh, and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But... For this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth. You are still exulting in yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy rain to, uh, hail to fall such as never been, has been in, the, in, in, in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field and find safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Verse 35. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Verse 12 of chapter 10, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for, for the locusts, so that they might come up, so that they might, I'm sorry, come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all the hail, uh, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. Verse 16, Then Pharaoh hastily called, uh, called Moses and Aaron, and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death, death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh, and he pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the lo locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Father, we ask that as we dive into these, uh, 
this, the, the story of these plagues, that you would not just simply leave us with these interesting facts of biblical history, but rather you would show us that you are indeed the God of all the world, the God who can control the wind, the sea, the rivers, the insects. You are the God who has faced death, the last enemy, and you have conquered it. Let us hope in you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was in high school, we got home from a basketball game on the bus, and, and uh, instead of calling home for a ride, I decided to walk the couple miles home uh, from the school to my house. And, uh, and so on that, on that cold, dark night, I cut across someone's yard right out of the parking lot and, uh, and got about halfway into the yard. And it was, it was dark, like as dark as dark can be, okay? Uh, not, a, not a light anywhere. And I'm about halfway through the yard, and I realize I'm in canine territory. <laughs> All right? Ever been there before? You walked into a, another a territory of, a, of another creature. And uh, so I hear this, this barking. That's how I know. I don't see the, the, the beast. I just hear it. And I hear the clinking of its collar as it's getting closer to me, right? And I realize it's running toward me. Uh, the bark is getting louder. The clinking is getting closer. And so I do a 180, and I head back to the parking lot as fast as I can possibly run. Okay, now I'm carrying my, my duffel bag and a taco from Taco Bell, all right? <laughs> and as I'm running as fast as I can, this thing is like this, it's right on my heels. I mean, it's right there. And I, I think quickly, God's grace, and I pull out the taco right? And I throw it to distract the ferocious beast. And it works, all right? It, it, took it took it off my trail, and I gave him something to eat. I made it back to the parking lot, very discouraged that I had lost this fight, uh, humbled, um, a, a heartbroken that I lost my taco, all right? And calling home for a ride, because I'm not going to uh, clash with this sovereign once again. Now, it was only once I got back to the parking lot that I could see the beast. It was about the size of a chihuahua, all right? <laughs> Maybe a Boston Terrier, all right? In the dark, it was a pit bull. <laughs> now, today we're going to get into... Uh, a, a clash of sovereigns, if you would. A clash around territory. Now, in some ways, my story is actually a terrible introduction and analogy uh, for what we're getting into. Because, well, this is somewhat of a spoiler alert, but we know that God wins in the end, okay? A better analogy would have been me walking through this yard and I hear the barking, I hear this, this, this yapper coming at me and, the, and just all of the lights in all of the world turn on around me and I see it and I kick it into its humiliation, right? <laughs> Probably a terrible analogy for dog lovers or chihuahua lovers, all right? Christy, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Even, I'm calling this sermon the clash of the gods. But even in some ways, that the title of my sermon is misleading. Because as we're going to get into it, you're going to see that there's not much of a clash. There's somewhat of a kick into humiliation that happens. As we discover that God is God. And that is my one point for today. If you forget everything else, remember this. God is God. And you say, well, that's simple. I learned that growing up. God is God. What are you talking about? Let me clarify. 
the, 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 the Lord of Israel, the God who has revealed himself through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and who came into this world, in his, the God-man, Jesus Christ, in the flesh, died for you on the cross, taking the wrath of God for you, rose from the dead, and is looking at you and calling you through the Holy Spirit to worship Him. That God is your only God in life. And that's what we see here as we get into the plagues. Now, like I said, we're going to cover eight plagues. Next week, uh, friend Isaac Adams will be here preaching with us. Uh, Please come back. It'll be great. After that, we're going to finish out the plagues over two weeks. We're going to take a week for the ninth and a week for for the tenth. But what we see here as, as we get into this immediately is this. There are such a thing as counterfeit gods. Now I want to work through this passage today under two main major headings. The first heading is this. God is God over every other, in scare quotes, God. God is God over every other God. The second heading is simply this. God is God over every empire. But as we get into it, we see that there are in the empire what we could call counterfeit gods. Tim Keller wrote a great book, and I'm stealing his title there, called Counterfeit Gods. It's a great book that shows the reality and the, and the lies, the false promises that are offered by our many gods that, that we choose to cling to in, in life. There are other gods. There were clear gods here, and we have gods in our life that are counterfeit they're fake, just like a counterfeit dollar. Somebody put a lot of work into it. It looks really good, but it's, it's fake. It's, it's a counterfeit. And what we see here as we get into this story is that the counterfeit gods like to replicate God's work. So the first sign of sovereignty that we see here in chapter 7 is this deal with, with the staff turning into a snake. So Moses is, is kind of a new man in a sense. He's no longer the trembling Moses that he once was. But he's now confident in who God is. And this confident in who God is, Moses now stands before Pharaoh and does exactly what God tells him to do. Take the staff, throw it on the ground, see what happens. This is my sign for Pharaoh. The first sign that God is, say it, God, Exactly. The staff goes on the ground, and what happens to it? It turns into a serpent. Now, what's, what surprises me, the first time I ever heard this as, as, a, uh, as a child, I remember hearing this story, and I was surprised that the magicians of Pharaoh did the exact same thing. So here's a snake crawling on the ground that was a staff. What does Pharaoh do? He says, hey, go get my magicians. These guys come out, they take their staffs, staffs, and they throw it on the ground, and it becomes a snake. Now, what's happening there? Do they have the power of God as well? Or maybe this is the power of the devil? You know what I think it is? Last spring, after the riots, I was down on Pennsylvania Avenue, and David Blaine showed up, the magician. And I was standing right there. It was David Blaine. All right, and I watched as, as Blaine used his secret arts, as, did these illusions, and wowed people. I think that's all that's happening here. These guys are magicians in the in the sense of the word that we use today. I think. I think they're tricksters. Why do I think that? Well, look right there at uh, verse eleven. What they do, it's, it's, it's called their secret arts. They're artists. They are tricksters. They're, 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 they're using secrets. This is a cheap imitation of the truth. Just like a counterfeit dollar. And family, this is Satan's age-old strategy. He uses cheap imita- imitations of God's work in your life to fool you, to trick you. He did this with Jesus. He tried to. When Jesus was in the wilderness, tempted, he said, look, bow down to me and I will glorify you. It's a cheap imitation of what God is going to do in Christ, right? As the Father lifts up the Son in his glory. And, and, and Satan uses cheap imitations of the truth in your life. 
You see, what is God's work in your life? It's the work of forgiveness, the work of real life, the work of, of real hope, the work of real joy, the work of peace, and Satan has a counterfeit for every single one of those works of God in your life. Like a chameleon, he will, uh, the, the, the magicians, if you would, will, will turn their, their skin into the color of the surrounding that is around them, and they will become a cheap imitation of God's work. You want the joy of marriage, but you don't want the commitment of marriage. We can have a cheap imitation there. You want the peace of forgiveness without the gospel. We can give you a peace of forgiveness without Jesus. You want, a, you want a sense of guiltlessness, to not feel guilty without true repentance. Satan can give you a cheap imitation. You know, there are entire churches that have, have replaced the real movement of the Holy Spirit with cheap imitations of the Holy Spirit emotionally driven places of supposed worship that are nothing more than emotions. Nothing more than just simply working up a crowd and, and, and walking away feeling like the Spirit moved, yet the Gospel was absent the entire time. You know what we can offer our community around us? We can offer something that Pharaoh's magicians cannot offer them. And that is the real deal. The real Christ, the real hope of the gospel, the real message of forgiveness, the real message of life and renewal in the Holy Spirit. What counterfeit might you be embracing today? What, what, what trick is Satan pulling on you? Now, as we see here, Moses staff gulps down the staff of the magicians, which is just simply a way of saying, look, this is what's, what's about to happen. Uh, God is about to swallow up Egypt. Moving on in the story, we see that the counterfeit gods are also powerless. I remember seeing a counterfeit dollar once, and someone put a lot of work into it. It looked like the real thing but you know what it could buy me? Nothing. And if I used it, probably a trip in a paddy wagon. The, the gods of Egypt are powerless. So we get into the first plague now. The plague comes in chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. And it's a plague that involves the Nile River. Now the Nile was the source of life for all of Egypt. All of e uh, the entire empire was built around the Nile. If they didn't have the Nile, they didn't have life. They depended on the Nile for absolutely every aspect of their economy. Now, the Egyptians, like the Greeks who are to come eventually, following after them, they sort of have a god for every single life source. God of the sun, etc., God of the river. Now, for the Egyptians, the God of the river is a very important God because this is the Nile. This is our life source right here. This is what has made us great as an empire. His name was Happy, H-A-P-I, the God of the Nile. And they worshiped him. You know, God striking the river here as we see as the plague hits us, verse 17, uh, the river was turned into blood. Or The word blood there is in the Hebrew is just simply the word red. So it might be actual blood. I think probably more likely it's just uh, it was a reddish color of contamination. It was absolutely contaminated to where all of, all of the fish died in the river. Not just the River Nile, but all of the water was, was touched by this plague, canals, ponds, pools. In verse 24, we see that they had to dig additional wells, and for the, the, the week, the seven days that this plague lasted, they had to drink water from these additional wells that they built. Now listen, striking the Nile, this is what I'm, the point I'm trying to chase here, striking the Nile isn't just simply uh, God trying to make their life difficult. It's not just simply God saying, oh, you know, I can, I can bother you a little bit. No, God here is introducing himself as the God of gods. God is saying, look, you think happy's got something going on over here? You're worshiping the God of the river? 
let me show you how powerful your God is. God is God. Happy ain't God. I am God. I control your water. And there is no other God. The counterfeit gods that are in our lives are absolutely powerless as well. Friends, what river are you hoping in? What river are you saying, this is my life source, and if this were to get contaminated, I don't know what I would do. God is God over every river in your life. And the tricky thing about these counterfeit gods is often a good thing can become a a bad thing. Something like water, river, good thing. And we can turn it into a god. Something like our career, something like our ambitions, something like our dreams, something like our family. What rivers are you hoping in? And do you understand and know that God can, like this, if he wants to, contaminate that river? God is God over every square inch of your life. Now, of course, Pharaoh here, he, he uh, freaks out about this. He, um, he says, whatever, I'll do it. Changes his mind, heart hardened. Moving on in the story, another, uh, another plague comes. And with this, we see that the counterfeit gods produce false repentance. I lived in Florida for a while, and I remember we had, we, there's a lot of lizards in Florida. Anybody ever lived in Florida? Anybody? Nobody at all, except for my wife. All right, Christy, okay. Wow. So uh, little gecko lizards all over the joint down there. And I was uh, in my dorm room playing my guitar once, and a lizard came out of the little hole in the, in the guitar, all right, and just stuck his head right through the strings and then pulled his head back in. <laughs> I was like, oh, there's a lizard. And I hated the lizards. They don't bother my wife. She was used to them. She grew up playing with the lizards. All right, one little lizard in my guitar is enough for me. Now, we see here with this plague, frogs, all right, everywhere. Now, you might think, oh, so, look, it's a, it's a cute little frog. Great. Imagine them in your house covering the ground. By the way, the Egyptians walked around barefoot, which means that as they're covering every inch of the ground, they're stepping on these, these little slimy bodies, and their bodies are squishing underneath their bare feet. Just trying to paint the picture for you here. In the bedrooms... All right, it says here that, that the frogs uh, were, were in their beds rolling over at 2 a.m. and the frog jumps on your cheek. You go into the kitchen, open the oven. It says that there's frogs there in the oven. Uh, the frogs are even in the kneading bowls. So you're, you're baking some bread and you're, you're doing this thing with, with, <laughs> with the, the ball of dough and there's a frog that you find inside of that little ball. Frogs are absolutely everywhere. Now, what I want to point out, though, is this. Look at Pharaoh's response to this. For the first time, Pharaoh says, get out of here. Fine, you want to leave? Fine, then leave. Just get rid of these frogs. Moses, at this point, his response is awesome. In verse 9, he says, just tell me when. When would you like me to turn, turn it off, to tell God to turn it off? Pharaoh's like, eh, maybe tomorrow. Why he didn't say today, I, don't, I have no clue, all right? Tomorrow, that'll, that'll do. All right, whatever. <laughs> so, tomorrow comes, and uh, the, the frogs are gone they die all over the place. It stinks. You can only imagine that. That doesn't really bother Pharaoh, though, because he's just simply relieved that the, fl- that the frogs are, are gone. Question, does Pharaoh then let them go? Absolutely not. 
This is what we call false repentance. We see this with every plague. The plague comes. Pharaoh hates it. He, wants, he hates the consequences of his disobedience to the Word of God. He hates what's going on, and he says, I'll obey. Just do whatever to take away the, the pain of these consequences. I'll obey. And as soon as the consequences are lifted, what does Pharaoh do? Hardens his heart. We see this especially in chapter 9, verse 27. Don't worry about turning there just quickly. The hail is coming. He can't take it anymore. There is death of livestock. There is death or the destruction of their crops. Pharaoh, at this point, he actually admits, I have sinned against God. I've disobeyed God. The hail is now gone. And in chapter 9, verse 34, it says, Pharaoh sinned again. Consequences of sin come. We don't like the consequences. We repent. We say, I'll I'll, I'll obey. The consequences are lifted. We're relieved. And we go back to our sinning. Does that sound like anybody? Yeah, it does. Thank you, Tony. It sounds like all of us. The gospel isn't about just simply being saved from consequences. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just simply about, oh, I don't like this, and so let me do what's right so that God would lift these consequences. No. The gospel is actually about the fact that Christ took all of our eternal consequences on himself as he died in our place on the cross, and because of his Death on the cross and his obedience to God for us, we are freed from the eternal consequences. And out of that freedom, we say, God, we want to obey. Let me ask you this. Do you hate the consequences more than you hate the sin itself? Where in your life are you finding just this cycle of false repentance? I don't like the way it feels, and so I'm going, to, I'm going to stop and change only to, as soon as you feel better, jump right back in. Christ frees you for obedience. You know, I, I encourage you sometime this week, maybe even today, right after the service, just talk to each other and, and, and share one way that you might find yourself on this cycle of false repentance. But don't just stop there. Also share how Christ taking all of the eternal consequences for your sin frees you to obedience. Now moving on in the story, we see the second heading here. God is God over not just every other God, but God is God over every empire. Now this is an important point to make as we look at these plagues and as we place them in the context of what's going on here. As we move on, uh, the, 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 uh, the many gods of, of Egypt are certainly proving to be absolutely false, counterfeit gods. And the empire must itself bow to God, the one true God. And so we see another plague come. This is the third plague, chapter 8, verses 16 through 19. We see a whole bunch of gnats described as, as many as the dust of the ground gnats all over the place. We had like 20 fruit flies in our house recently, and they were driving us insane. We had to go over to the hardware store over here and get one of these little apple-shaped bug killers and place it in our kitchen in hopes, and 20 of them, all 20 of them ended up in there. But like 20 is annoying. Can you imagine just swarms of gnats all over the place, in your mouth, in your food, everywhere. I mean, all all of the apple-shaped bug bug killers in all of Egypt wouldn't be enough to kill these things. Described as many, as, uh, as numerous as the dust of the ground. The magicians to this in verse 19, they say, oh, this must be the finger of God. The magicians are starting to see it. We can't replicate, we can't duplicate this. 
So as it goes on, the story continues, and, and uh, God shows that he is the God over the empire. God is the God over the empire. First, we see here that God is the God of terror and refuge. Pharaoh thought he was the God of terror. God says, no, I am the God of terror. You might remember that earlier in the story, Pharaoh dropped quite a bit of terror on the Israelites. He had already enslaved them, and when he didn't like the command of their God, he said, look, uh, things are going to get worse for you, and you're going to have all the terror that you can imagine, and the slavery got worse. But now, the flies descend upon Egypt all over the place. The, uh, the terror, I'm sorry, not the flies. Or yeah, the flies, let's move on. In chapter 8, verse 20, verse 30, 32, we see the flies, the next plague, descend upon Egypt. And for the first time with this fourth plague, the flies, there is a distinction made. There are flies all over Egypt But in this land called Goshen, everybody say Goshen. It's an important name to remember. In this area called Goshen, where the Israelites lived, you didn't need a fly swatter. It was perfect peace. Now, wrap your mind around this. Pharaoh thought that he could terrorize Israel. And now the slave people who he had been terrorized is living in a place of absolute peace. It's what we might call a refuge. And the the land of Egypt is in terror. Pharaoh is not the God of terror. God is the God of terror and refuge. As it goes on, we see the fifth plague in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Uh, a disease, a horrible disease, strike the livestock. And again, there's this distinction made. All the livestock in Egypt die, not one of the livestock in Goshen die. You know, in, in the midst of this, this, the judgment of the ten, command, uh, the ten plagues, which often that's, that's where we struggle, like, man, how could God be so harsh? I think sometimes I understand why we would ask that question. At the same time, I think it's, we're, we're looking at things from the, the wrong, through the wrong lens. We're looking at things through the lens that, that people are naturally good uh, and, and naturally deserve uh, good things uh, as opposed to the reality that disobedience to God's Word is dreadful. It is a terrible thing to fall into the judgment of this God. It is a terrible thing to deny this God in your life. So the Egyptians deserve much worse than some flies. So even with the plagues, there is still a, a sense of restraint. God is not pouring out his wrath. But I, what I want to point out, though, is this, is there is this, this issue of grace as well for the people of Israel. Like, we totally overlooked that. The Israelites deserve the flies as well as much as any. Yet God is, is, is showing us something about the bestowal of His sovereign grace as He just simply gives grace to Israel. And not only that, but God, even in chapter 9, we see an invitation for Egyptians. As the hail's coming, the Egyptians are told, look, take your, take your animals. Any, anybody who fears the word of the Lord can, can find shelter Uh, when the hail comes. And as it goes on, it says, uh, the Egyptians who feared the Lord found shelter. And those who did not ended up in the cold. There is a place of refuge. When I was in my mid-20s, I went through a terrible time of despair and depression. It's just like something clicked inside of me, and, and I found myself uh, broken. And the world just seemed, seemed bleak. There, seemed to, uh, uh, there was no hope in the world. I was extremely depressed. I, I couldn't do anything. I was in absolute des- despair. What I did do was I turned to the Word. And I remember Psalms, such as Psalm 11, which say, The, the Lord is my refuge. 
just stuck out to me in a way that they had never stuck out to me before. And the picture that came to mind was sort of this, this storm that we are in of, of, of the consequences of sin and the judgment of God and, and the problems of sin. Uh, and, and then I find this place of refuge in, 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 a, uh, in a cave where, where the, the rock has been cut out. And, and in there, it's warm. And in there, it's, it's comfortable. And in, from, from that vantage point, I can still see everything that's happening, but I'm at peace inside of this refuge. This is the picture that God wants us to have when we think of His grace. He has opened, us, uh, opened up for us a Goshen, if you would. A place of refuge. A place where God's judgment is not experienced and it's an invitation for all. All who hear my voice, come and find refuge here in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Why stay out there in the place of God's judgment? Moving on. The sixth plague. Boils. Now here with this plague, we see that God is the God not of only terror and refuge, but He's the God of Pharaoh's own heart. I don't know if you've ever had one boil, but could you imagine boils as numerous as the dust of the ground all over your flesh? The magicians are called for and they can't even come because of the boils, it says. Now in chapter 9, verse 12, at the end of this plague, we see something that, that has led the uh, most distinguished theologian to scratch his head. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Here, active, the active hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the active judgment of God on Pharaoh. Romans 9 picks this up, and God says, I will harden whom I will. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that God is the bad guy? Does this mean that God is just simply controlling his heart Romans chapter 1 sets the stage for Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 1, we see what would be the hardening of hearts. And it's described for us there as a giving over to one's sin. Meaning, for the individual who continues in sin, the person who's absolutely unrepentant, and they just keep on going back to their sin, as part of God's judgment on their sin, God will give them over to their sin. God is essentially saying, you want to live in rebellion against me. I will take away from you the opportunity to repent. I will take away from you the ability to repent. And I will give you over to your sin. Now this, you might say, is haunting. And that's what it's meant to be. This should haunt us. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. And God here, we see him handing Pharaoh over to his sin. Now, there, there's something else that we see here, putting it into the context of the bigger picture. Pharaoh believed that he was the God over these people. Pharaoh believed that, that, that uh, he was the God of the Israelites. Pharaoh believed that he was the God of these slaves. Pharaoh believed that he was the most powerful man in the entire world. For 430 years, he's, he's, he's experienced and, and heard about and, and, and for his lifetime seen these people, the Israelites, uh, and, and, and must have thought to himself, their God must be absolutely powerless. But now what Pharaoh has seen so far is that God is the God of the water. God is the God of the insects. God is the God of the weather. And not only that, but God is the God of Pharaoh's own heart. God is the God over the fate of Pharaoh. Let's go on quickly from here. We've got to wrap this up. 
We also see that God is the God of not only his heart, but God is the God of Pharaoh's throne. So the same plea comes to Pharaoh, let my people go. He refuses. And the remaining crops and livestock are destroyed by hail in chapter 9, verses 13 through 34. For four centuries, these people, the Israelites, have been locked in slavery. For four centuries, the Israelites uh, have, have been proven to be fools in the eyes of Egypt. For four centuries, God has been largely silent. But now, after 430 years of slavery, the God of the slaves rises up and ruins Egypt in 20 weeks. Pharaoh's own people are saying, would you please let them go? Egypt is ruined. Friends, I wish you could see this. God has been hiding behind the veil of his own, his own mercy. And after four centuries, God rises up and he says, enough is enough. I am God. And so here, uh, what, what God says to Pharaoh, look at it in chapter 9, verse 16. He says, for this purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show, that, uh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth. God is saying, look, Pharaoh, for all of these years, you thought it was all about you. You thought it was all about the empire of Egypt. You thought you were the most powerful ruler in all of the world. But Pharaoh, check it out. The God of the slaves, I actually raised you up for this purpose. When you decided to make things worse for my people, that was, that was me behind that. I've been at this the whole time. Just so you could know that my name is to be great in the world, not yours. The next verse exposes the problem. He says, you're still exalting yourself. You're still trying to lift yourself up as God over my people. These are my people. This land of Egypt, this is my land. This Nile River, this is my river. And these slaves of yours, they're mine. God is God of Pharaoh's throne. Even when Jesus died on the cross, you know, questions I'm sure abounded and thoughts of whether or not the empire had won in Acts chapter 4, verse 28. Thinking of the Roman Empire who sanctioned the death of Christ, the mobs who, who accused him and led him to the cross. Thinking of all of that in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 28, it says this. It says they, meaning all of those people who crucified him, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Look, there is no mayor, no police chief, no drug lord, no king, no queen, no pharaoh that exists outside of the sovereignty and the grace of God. And this is the God of slaves. This is the God of the underdog. This is the God of those who are broken by their sin. This is the God of those who have looked at themselves and they said, you know what, I am a sinner. I, I, I'm chained to my sin. Nobody else sees that. It's only those who have their eyes opened to their slavery. And God says, you're my people. This is the God of you. This is the God of me. This is the God of us broken, messed up individuals. Whatever enemy, whatever spiritual enemy that you have in your life, listen, God raised that enemy up so that you might know the power of His redemption in your life. You know what's crazy? God could have removed Israel from Egypt in one second if He wanted to. Instead, God chose to do it through this process of plagues. Why? Well, the point has been made clear in His Word. So that the world 
might know that God is God. So that we might know, as the old song says, he's got the whole world in his hands. Every bit of it. There's not one square inch of this earth in which God does not reign. Does the peace of Christ reign in your life? Do you know this Christ? Have you been delivered? Do you know that Jesus died for your sins? Do you find hope in Him? Can you turn from all of your counterfeit gods and say, He is God of my life and absolutely none other? What should our response be? This is, this is our response. We are to serve Him. Notice all throughout these, the, these plagues, when the command comes from Moses, he doesn't just simply say, let my people go. That's what we always think he says. That's sort of the tagline in all, my, all the movies. Let my people go. No. He says more than that. Every single time the word comes from Moses, he says, let my people go so that they might serve me. God is a God of purpose. He doesn't just deliver us so that we might be free in general. He doesn't just simply deliver us so that we might be happy in whatever we choose to be happy in. And, and No. God is a God of purpose and He delivers us. The very reason He delivers us is so that we might serve Him. Exactly why has God delivered you from the tyranny of sin and death? It's so that you might serve Him. God has delivered you from bondage so that you might fall on your knees and cry, holy, holy, holy. God has delivered you from bondage so that you might know that He is far better than any other God that you've ever tried to worship in your life. God has delivered you from bondage so that you might devote your entire life to Him. God has delivered you from bondage so that you might know His power in your life. God has delivered you from bondage so that you, you might know that He is a sovereign God and that He is indeed in control of all things and all things work together for the good of those who love Him. God delivered you from bondage so that you might know His goodness so that you might know His love. God delivered you from bondage so that you might know that you were once lost. And God delivered you from bondage so that you might know that in His grace and mercy you have been found. God has delivered you from bondage so that you might know that He is God. Because God is God. Let us serve Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can dive into this, this story, this difficult story, but a beautiful story, which shows us that you indeed are God. Even when the enemies rise up against us, there is no other God but you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.